Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hemlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. How are you? I'm, I'm hot, right? It's, it's, <laughs> it's July in the Mid-Atlantic, and uh, we're still working from home. TR has gotten back from its deployment, I guess, arguably what you could call a controversial deployment. But so welcome back to Theodore Roosevelt. Um, and uh, life continues, right? We're trying to figure this out. Yeah, we, we heard recently from uh, one of our young authors, uh, Ensign Kirk Wolf, who's out on the USS Paul Hamilton, currently in the Persian Gulf area. And as of a few days ago, they had 170 straight days underway, or 170 out of 174 days deployed underway. So that's that's a bit more grueling deployment than I think you or I ever faced in terms of the number of number of beer days, right? I had one beer day on my first deployment. I had two beer two beer days on my I think second or third deployment on on uh, USS John C. Stennis in '98. And I was extended yeah. for a couple of weeks on two of my deployments, but nothing like what we're talking about. Uh, in that regard. So yes, yeah. op tempo is, you know, maxed out. Sure. We'll be seeing articles and proceedings about the effect of op tempo on retention. There's always a cycle there, a resonant effect uh, associated with riding sailors hard and put them away wet. Kudos to the crews of those ships for, uh, for doing the hard job. Well, as Sam Legrone pointed out to us yesterday, since um, I guess it was kid, uh, there hasn't been a major outbreak, so uh, there's a general perception that the Navy knows how to do coronavirus now, but it does result in more time at sea bo- on both ends right. and, uh, and, a, and a very uh, strict protocol associated with accepting new people on and off the ship. For those young sailors who are out there who are lamenting the fact that they're spending seven, eight, nine months almost entirely at sea, it, it, it's hard, definitely. But it pales in comparison to what we're going to hear from our guest today, who is Naval Institute Press author Skip Finley, who's written a book that's called Whaling Captains of Color, America's First Meritocracy. And he is joining us on the show today from Martha's Vineyard. Skip, uh, how are things in Martha's Vineyard? And and welcome to the show. Uh, You know, they're fabulous. Thank you very much. First, thank you for doing the show. It's wonderful. Um, You know, a black guy on Martha's Vineyard. You know, almost is a great way to start a joke. <laughs> um, on 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 one hand, our population, you know, year round is only about two point nine percent. On the other hand, in the month of August, uh, because of the famous nature of the town of Oak Bluffs and its heritage, we have many many black people here. I don't know. I, w- I would I would venture a guess, um, which is a good guess because some have said I'm a demographic expert, but we probably have one hundred forty thousand uniquely different individuals here in August, and probably 40,000 would be black. Um, in addition, the town I'm in, Oak Bluffs, um, almost half the homes are owned by black people who are not all here all the time. Some here for a week or the two weeks vacation or all summer like I was able to grow up. Um, but that's a very unique way for anyone to grow up, particularly someone, you know, who is black. So, you know, in context, that has a lot of relevance. Um, I also want to go back for one second um, listening to you strong, committed naval guys talking about this, you know, months aboard a ship. Um, how about most of these people, 175,000 of them over the quote, over 200 years were on ships for an average of two and a half to three years. 
and they never knew where the end was going to be or when they would come back, you know, because the rule of thumb was you come back when the hull is full. And then after a while, they learned because there was so much desertion due to the business being so bad and so awful. Um, they would try not to dock anywhere. They would, you know, um, you know, drop the anchor in a harbor just far, just too far for you to swim. And then they would send the oil back home and go back again and find more whales. So let, let's set the scene of this industry because this book is full of so many amazing details. Let's let's go thirty thousand foot, uh, or let's go wave top, and just talk about <laughs> Wait, the whaling industry. Right, here, wave wave top uh, for me was um, uh, you know I used to be a professional broadcaster you know when I was you know somewhat good at it. Um, I've attempted to retire several times. I've failed miserably at each one. Um, I started writing the Oak Bluffs town column for the um, the Vineyard Gazette, where I work today, um, and decided I wanted to be a writer. Um, and did. I was a columnist. Along the way, they had restored the Charles W. Morgan, and Martha's Vineyard was one of its stops. So the magazine we owned dedicated a full issue to the Charles W. Morgan, largely because... Um, I believe seven of its captains, you know, are from Martha's Vineyard, um, which included its first captain, you know, and as it turns out, you know, its last for a different for a different reason. So anyway, I was asked to write a story for the magazine about what we at that time believed was to be the black whaling captain here on Martha's Vineyard, a man named William A. Martin. And I did, you know, and, and you know, a, a little bit about me for, you know, for a moment. Uh, in the media business, I'd mentioned I was kind of a demographic expert. It, it's all numbers. You know, how many of what type of people are going to reach and how much is that going, going to cost in a nutshell? Um, and, and I, I wound up getting to be an executive and a suit and spreadsheets are one of my favorite things. And, you know, I know it seems like I'm veering off the story, but I'm not. Hang on. <laughs> so in the process of doing research, you know, about this whaling captain, it didn't take long to occur to me. How the hell does someone black get to be a captain of anything in the mid-late 1800s like this guy was? Well, you know, again, and the last time I'm going to interject me is, is um, most of my friends, you know, recognize, you know, I suffer a little bit from ADHD and OCD simultaneously, you know, which is, you know, I can't hold a thought in my mind, but for so long. But on the other hand, once I decide I've latched on to something, you can't get me away from it. So before I knew it, I had um, I had bought and read and taken notes on over 100 whaling books, many of which are over here behind me on my shelves. Um, and that that included, I, I don't know, I could say at least a thousand, you know, other source material from websites to folks, master's theses to find out how this guy became a captain. And before I knew it, there were more. So what the book is about is these 52 people who I'm fairly well certain and, and have embarked upon proving were both black, I'll come back around to that, and captains of whale ships. So, you know, then getting a little higher up on the level about whaling, the big question I've, I've been asked in many of the talks I've given was the same question I had, is how does a black person, you know, get to be captain of anything? Well, remarkably, the first black captain, Paul Cuffey, was one and owned his own ship during the Revolutionary War. You know, in the 1700s, not the mid-1800s, I have presumed. And whaling didn't end till you could say, officially 1928, 
It was one of its last trips out of, I think, San Francisco. And along the way, what happened was the business was so bad. It was so hard. It was so awful. It was, it was bereft of anything that we would recognize today as comfort. And I know I'm talking to sailors now. <laughs> you know, so, you know, life aboard a, you know, a fighting ship would, would be um, going to heaven for a whaler. Everything about it was miserable. And it's because it was so bad. Of the 175, my number, thousand people who ever went whaling, over 90% only went once. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that it probably took the first, between the first three days, uh, when people who we now recognize as green hands, you know, found out they didn't have sea legs and spent much of their si- time at the side of the boat, you know, regurgitating the contents of whatever they'd eaten. That was the first tip on how things, how bad everything's going to be. So it wasn't what we've come to believe was, you know, the blonde, blue-eyed, 16, 17-year-old um, standing beneath the lighthouse here on Martha's Vineyard where they have what's called the Bridge of Size with his girlfriend um, on the last night before the voyage, you know, assuring her that their life is going to be wonderful when he comes back rich after this whaling trip. He got maybe two buoys away and he wanted to get the hell off that boat. <laughs> as we would have as well ourselves. Um, and after getting on the boat, uh, the story really goes downhill. So of those 175,000 people, probably 30 to 40 percent, records aren't quite good enough in all the places that people whale from. But that's, you know, that's my number. Um, where black people, they could be enslaved over there on land in America. So they stayed on the boat. And they gained more and more and more experience. So the answer to the question was, when you're 1,200 miles at sea and something happens to the captain, you just want to know who can get you home and maybe kill some more whales along the way. And it turned out the person with the most experience was usually the man they recalled a replacement captain. And of 15,915 whaling trips, 2,700 ships were utilized. 2,500 of these men were captains, 950 of them, you know, were somehow damaged on a ship and had to be replaced. And as it turned out, about half of the 52 guys I discovered happened to have been black. Um, So hence, in the title, thanks to the wonderful editors um, who've trained me in, you know, in how to write at the Naval Institute Press, um, you know, it has to be well in captains of color, but it has to be something else. Um, so I came with this America's first meritocracy because you had to be good. You had to be capable. You had to be competent or the crew wouldn't let you hold that position. But again, there could be some listeners who have no idea what that Not, industry was yeah, all about. I, right. So uh, yeah. basically we were harvesting whales for oil. And uh, you have a stat in there that at, at, at its height, oil, whale oil was commanding $2.50 a barrel. Um, a gallon. A a gal- gallon. Oh, a gallon. Okay. A gallon. Um, so that's, that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty pricey stuff. So, uh, you know, when there's a profit motive, we know that the human species will go to great lengths and uh, tolerate, as it were, uh, significant discomfort. So that's the essence of the whaling industry to start with. Whales offer three products. Um, you know, and, and at first, you know, to all of my friends, you know, let me say clearly and succinctly, today there's more money being made whale watching 
than there ever was whale killing. I'm one of those people. The most famous whale most people know is a pink one, you know, that's the logo for Vineyard Vines. I totally <laughs> get that. I totally understand that. But at some point, whales were a product and a very necessary one. The first reason, after, after the Native Americans, you know, who, who, who invented whaling, to, you know, use a poor description, um, they used the, the animal for its, its products. They, they made, you know, clothing out of them. They ate, a, they ate it, you know, as food, for example. They started with drift whales. Um, but when we went out to get whales, we were using them to light our homes. Spermacetes is the top of the whale food chain for many, many years, you know, because there's two kinds of whale oil on in a whale. One is the regular oil, which was used principally for lubrication. Um, but the principal source and the reason they did it was to light our homes. So that whale oil, sperm oil, that was the rich man's source of light. What was different was when you had tallow candles, they put, they put soot, the, the smoke put soot all over your walls. So, you know, you, you lived in a nasty little hovel. By the time they started using candles made from spermaceti, it burned clean. So your house, you know, could stay the color that you painted them. Um, sperm whales were, you know, not the easiest, you know, to catch. Um, they're not as fast as some whales like blue whales. And they have teeth, so they bite you and they fight back. You know, so that um, not as many people, captains, were killed by whales as people, you know, expect because the danger had, there was too many other ways to, you know, to, you know, provide danger for people on the water, particularly for the number of years that they went. The next level of usefulness, you know, for these, you know, was just the, besides the, you know, the regular oil or the, or the blubber, that oil by the end of whaling lubricated American Industrial Revolution. You know, the cotton gins that we made and the trains that we used to, you know, send out west to, you know, dig oil from the ground to make steel and ship it. That was whale oil that was used for that lubrication. And then finally, it was the baleen of whales, which is a keratin-like substance like our fingernails, as, a, as an example, that hangs from the roof of certain whales' mouths, baleen whales, you know, right whales. Um, and it is used to separate the water from the krill or the organisms that, you know, that whales eat. As it turned out, you could use these, you know, sometimes 14, 20 foot long pieces of things that look like plastic as plastic. You know, once you took that, that material and you heated it, it would stay in the shape you left it in. So all of our brushes and buggy whips and, you know, articles of clothing and things were made out of, out of this, out of this product. Now, of course, both of the key, the principal product were replaced over the years. In, uh, in 1857, uh, shale oil was discovered in Pennsylvania. So you don't have to go 20,000 miles, you know, to take a chance, you know, killing whales in small boats. You know, it's, it's right there. That was the first. The second was, um, as the years wore on, the highest use, the most use of the baleen from whales was in, in women's fashion and corsets. Well, one day the French decided, you know, the woman doesn't have to have a 18 or 19 inch waist. They don't need to wear these anymore. We've changed fashion. The whaling industry was dead, you know, right then. That was the end of it. So the, the, the evolution itself, square rigger, later paddle, paddle wheels or whatever sort of craft would f find a whale. They, they deploy the smaller boats like rowboats. 
Um, and somebody <laughs> somebody would chuck a harpoon and they'd hold on and do what we call the Nantucket sleigh ride until the whale uh, either got tired or, or passed on. And then they'd drag it back to the ship and load it aboard and, and, and start to carve it up, right? So it's a, it's a really... Um, I know everybody's that's, probably familiar with Moby Dick, and you you say that that's probably everybody's frame of reference. I mean, a lot of people were assigned the book. I doubt very many people actually read it. Um, but, you know, we think about Moby Dick. So, as you said at the outset, this is a tough way of life. This is really a hard go um, well, to, to me, get her done. Let me disabuse you for a second of that, you know, romantic, you know, Herman Melville-like notion. Um Herbert Melville was was brilliant. There there were two things, you know. One thing he did, he actually took a whale trip, so he knew what he was talking about. But his brilliance is is in his writing. Um, you know, there are very, 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 very few humans who can write as well as he, as he did. And his story was a story. You know, it's about the you know relationships between men, between men and nature. Um, but that's romantic. You know, you know, for a second, let's veer from the romance and talk about whaling. Um, those poor young guys, average age in their young 20s, um, by the way, probably younger than the U.S. Navy, um, are out there thousands of miles away from home. Um, and and they're, they're pretty happy because they're safe. They still have food that hasn't spoiled yet. They may have water that's still potable. Um, and by that time, they hear about their first whale. And it wasn't the popular notion, you know, thar she blows. My understanding was just blows was how they expressed themselves. And if you can imagine, if, you know, the the excitement and the adrenaline rush, and you're looking around to see where that is, what it is, and you first see it, I'm sure there's some there's some fact of relation the first time. And then the captain says to the whale boats, and these are thirty some foot long. Yes, um, rowboats with six guys each in them, one in the front with a harpoon, one in the back steering it, and four guys who are rowing. So they lower the boats to the water. You jump in, they lower your boat, you row out towards that whale. The whale doesn't know you, doesn't know what you are, doesn't know you have a harpoon, or it can hurt, but it's doing what it's doing. And you're rowing after this until you can catch it. And yes, one guy throws that harpoon into that whale. You know, let me kind of characterize that. Um, I've read a lot of whaling things. There's a guy named Claude Oliveira who threw a harpoon 42 feet, which is widely acknowledged as the furthest away someone was from a whale when they attempted to kill something that weighs tons. If he was good, if he was fortunate, after 1847, when a, when a black man named Louis Temple invented the Temple's toggle, you know, when you threw that harpoon into the whale, it would stick because the toggle would keep it from coming out again. Well, that, you took the Nantucket sleigh ride. So now here you are again in that 30-foot ship boat, many pieces of toothpicks glued together, being towed at perhaps eight or nine miles an hour, okay, behind an angry whale that's hurt. You never know how far that is, but a whale, you know, swimming four or five miles away in that Nantucket sleigh ride, you know, is certainly not a stretch of the imagination. Some of these whales, you know, could go for 12 hours, you know, pulling you. Well, then when it tired and you got close enough, the part they don't tell you about is all the guys in the boat, particularly the two guys at both ends, taking these massive, long, sharp materials 
and stabbing and stabbing and stabbing and stabbing and stabbing this animal until it dies. And there's blood all in the water and it rolls over, blood attracts sharks. You know, so, you know, imagine, you know, this scene from hell that you're now enduring for your first time after you heard blow and you were so excited. Now you're scared to death. <laughs> and then after you kill the whale, which, you know, most whales, when they die, they regurgitate the contents of their stomach. Sperm whales eat squid. Imagine what that must smell like, not by the bucket, but by the truckload. Oh, my God. Oh, wait. Did I forget? Now you got to row back and tow the whale with you. Then you get alongside the boat and you get on the painter looking platform and the platform that you see that looks like, you know, the folks use when they're when they're um, washing windows in a tall building. And there's a couple of guys there and they chain the whale up to it and they and they tie it up and they roll the whale around. And while it's rolling, they're cutting big, big pieces out and they hoist the big pieces up onto the top of the whale ship. And other people cut into smaller peoples, and then smaller people still. They got down to the the smallest one was called um, the the Bible pieces, I remember correctly. And then you take that and you put it into an iron cauldron on top of a wooden ship, you know, perhaps on a on a bed of bricks, and melt that oil down. And when it's viscous enough, you know, after being melted, you pour it into barrels that sometimes are made on board. You close them up, you roll them down into the hatch, and you repeat the process. That does not sound like a fun job. No, that, not that's a single, not a fun there's job. There's not a single part of that that I like. And that wasn't the bad part. What's the bad part? What's the bad part? What's the worst thing you ever heard? You know, goodness, you know, where do I begin? But, you know, here's a couple. Again, in context, um, your, your space aboard in the foxhole of a whale ship, you know, may be the size of the backseat of an SUV. And that's your home for three, four years. The longest whale trip was almost 12 years, 11, 11 months, uh, 11 years and nine, and nine months, I think. That's your home. That's your, that's your comfort. Okay. Well, while you're down there and you're, and you're, and you're sleeping, uh, these, these are, these are nasty vehicles from any perspective, however you care to look at it. But a man said, you know, he didn't mind being covered in roaches all night long in the dark because they ate the bed bugs. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <Whoa. laughs> but wait, there's more. Then there's the part I read about they wash their clothes in urine. So many questions. <laughs> so many questions. Where'd you get the urine? It's a, it's a communal barrel. Okay, how bad did your clothes smell that you found the need to wash them in urine? You know, why wouldn't you use seawater? You know, well, seawater is going to rot your clothes a lot quicker. Yeah, and seawater doesn't doesn't cut through the oil, right? The oil that permeates everything from the process of. of ah, uh, so, so here you are in this in this in this Stygian looking structure. You know, from a distance, looks like a Hieronymus Bosch painting, and you can smell it before you can see it. Wow. And you're living like that for three and a half to four years. So would you call you guys plebes? Yes. <laughs> yeah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's good come perspective. On. Good perspective, um, Skip. So let, let's talk about the uh, pre-Civil War black whaler experience. 
yeah, you already mentioned that, you know, the better of two choices, wearing urine-soaked clothing beats being a slave. But let's talk right. about the 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 whaling community, New England. There's a free state. You have Quakers. You have initiatives. You have stuff going on. But as you said, the it's the ultimate meritocracy. So we'll, we'll get into some of these specific personalities right. like, like Paul Cuffey, et cetera. But let's, let's just talk about the black sure. whaling sailor experience. Here's, here's something. Here's something that I, that I found, you know, astounding, the relationship of whaling to slavery. There, you know, there's, there's so many touch points. Um, the first and least obvious, and, you know, many of my friends on Nantucket do not realize it, um, but, you know, Nantucket could make a claim, good claim, to be the home of freedom from slavery. Okay? Years ago, in the 1700s, Yes, there were slaves, you know, on Nantucket. People owned slaves. Um, but Nantucket and the whaling industry was founded by the Quakers or the Friends, you know, as they call them, you know, who are first and foremost, you know, it's all business. You know, you know, we're not necessarily inter interested in integration. OK, but we'd much have you working for us with a with a, a business model that's almost identical to a private equity firm or a um, or a hedge fund today. There was a wonderful article written by, you know, Harvard guy, case study, you know, damn, like, I'm so sorry, I forget his name, as I just thought uh, last summer. And, and the, the model for whaling is, you know, is, is very simply this. Um, each of 15,900 whaling trips was a different business enterprise, different owners, different captain, different crew. We're going to put our money up about $60,000. We're going to launch a whale ship. When that whale ship comes back, we're first going to take our cost out, okay? Then we're going to reward the people proportionally based upon how they've been hired or what they've done. A captain may get one-tenth to one-fourteenth, one-fifteenth of the net profit after cost of a whale trip. And then went down to the, you know, to the scurviest waiting to desert, you know, crewman who would get maybe one-two-hundredth. So many people came back and had to pay money to leave the trip because they didn't make any. So that's the business model working with. Well, back in the slavery days, um, a man, Jonathan Slocum, had one of his slaves go on a whale trip so he could have that slave's whale, the wages. Okay. Um, the, the, the man did such a good job that the captain decided, I'm going to pay you for your effort and your work. I'm not going to pay the owner. The guy's name was Prince Boston. This was in 1762-ish. Of course, the, you know, Slocum, the owner, says, you know, no, it's not going to be that way, you know, do this. Well, one of the owners of that whale ship that he was on had to be a man named William Roach, who was probably, of, of everyone, the man who was most successful in moving this, the whaling industry from Nantucket to New Bedford. Okay, making it the great industry that it became. He said he would employ the services of John Adams, former President John Adams, okay, as his lawyer to represent him in this case. So the owner says, ah, the hell with it, you know, never mind, um, and wound up freeing his slaves. So um, ostensibly, even though because he was a slave, he not, did not do it himself, but Prince Boston gets the credit for being the first person, you know, to sue essentially for his freedom, and he was freed. Immediately after that case, Nantucket 
outlawed slavery legally in 1763. 1763, black people were free on Nantucket. It took another 100 years for that to happen in the rest of America. In 17, I'm sorry, 1773, in 1783, the state of Massachusetts did the same thing. So if you have that slavery wailing right there. Did that, did that cause an immediate draw from the South? Were, were people trying to escape or who were escaping from slavery or were in places where it was transitioning? Did they, did, did they move they, north knowing that they, there were opportunities for them, including in the whaling industry? They did not. Um, um, while that did happen in many cases, it took a lot longer. You know, they had no radio. They had no TV. Black people were not allowed to read. So they had no information that that was true. I think the example everyone used is the great orator and writer Frederick Douglass, you know, who escaped, escaped slavery, slavery from down there in Maryland where y'all are, okay, and wound up in New Bedford as a caulker for whale ship, on whale ships. He was able to do that because he was able to obtain what's called the Seaman's Protection Papers from someone he knew. The Seaman's Protection Papers, you know, are very useful for where we are today because that was the database that I used to identify all these folks. Okay, back to slavery for a second. So, so they're one mitigating factor, you know, for, of slavery. Another one was almost all of whaling, almost all occurred above the Mason-Dixon line. Now, remember when whaling started, there was no West Coast, you know, because, you know, whaling ended, you know, in San Francisco. Yes, there was whaling, you know, in Hawaii, you know, many years later. But we're talking about pretty much the 13 states, you know, in the very beginning. You know, well, there were two. I think it, there was there was the um, in 1790 and again in 1850, you know, there were there were these laws that allowed people to come after you and the future future slave laws and. Someone who you didn't know could say, well, that person was a slave of mine and I'm taking him or her back. And people would allow that to happen because that was the law. So no one went whaling below the Mason-Dixon line. There are no whaling ports I've been able to find, in fact, below New York City, which wasn't a big one. But, of course, you know, they had shipping. So, you know, so, you know, it survived there. You know, so, you, so you have a, a, a causative factor. Okay, of a lot of people having to be black, not wanting to get taken into slavery or back into slavery, why would we go there? An another, another, um, you know, linchpin, you know, lynch point. Back to the the um, the Siemens Protection Papers. Uh, around about the late 1700s, we got tired of the British impressing our sailors. You know, taking them and putting them on their ship, and you know, you know, and it's you know, you can die, or you can work for us, you know, or we'll just strand you out in the middle of the ocean someplace. So the Siemens Protection Papers were identified. You know, my words, not specifically, because you know they were the law of land, and I, I forget, I forget what year. Uh, but that was like your passport, so you could prove I'm an American citizen and I work on a ship. You know, and this is this is what I do. As you as you boarded a ship or you know left the dock. A customs officer would identify you and your papers. You know, say so we'd get your name and where you were from, where you're going. Are you black? Are you yellow? What's your race? What's your eye color? What's your hair? So these are how people identified and maintained in these records for years and years and years. Um, it was principally the New Bedford, you know, where Wagen, where Wheeling Bergen 
that kept and maintained these records for all this time. Yes, they had them on Nantucket. <clears throat> Nantucket had a had a big fire in the eight, in the mid eighteen hundreds, and they lost their records. Long Island, which was another whaling capital, capital, you know, Sag Harbor. Um, same thing happened. You know, fire destroyed their records. So now the the um, my, one of my favorite people, the Mark Prochnik at the um, New Bedford Whaling Museum Library, who I got to know from going there so many times, said to me one day, "What are you doing?" So I said, "You know, I'm, you know, researching." Uh, black whaling captain. He goes, oh, yeah, you know, there's plenty of those. You know, can I help you? We have about a dozen. I'm like, dude, I've got like 40. <laughs> and, you know, so so he started helping me, and he turned me on to what we call the crew list, which is literally a database they had just translated into into a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet. You know, now it's become a CSXCV or, you know, whatever it is. Um, now, here's Skip Finley, former broadcaster, demographic expert, computer geek, you know, and, you know, spreadsheet, you know, hero. <laughs> so I data sorted, data sorted, and data sorted, you know, this massive database, and more people started coming out, you know, which allowed me to do this. So, you know, again, going back to slavery, you know, if we can identify you. So you're on a whale ship. You've got your seamen's protection papers. It's pretty hard to say, well, that guy's a slave, and, that lady, and we're going to take you back because you can prove, you know, that you're not. There's a, there's at least one recorded instance on uh, on Nantucket when a slave hunter was looking for people who had escaped slaves, slavery and were living on Nantucket, and they went there to get them back. And the community stood in front of the house. They allowed they helped the people escape from their house out the back door. And they told the slave hunters, you know, straight up, okay, we want these people on our whale ships. We don't want them to be slaves. Y'all get the hell out of here. You know, go home. Um, that story is retold and retold and retold. Um, and there came a time when you would never even make that attempt in the city of New Bedford, okay, because there are just, you know, so many. So the, the, the juxtaposition between the two, you know, one is, you know, just the, the actual years, you know, 16, 19, you know, for black people coming to America from Africa, um, you know, 1628, when um, when Native Americans, you know, at Sag Harbor and on Martha's Vineyard were, you know, taking slaves that had died and washed up on the beach. You know, I mean, I mean I'm sorry, whales that died washed on the beach and using them for products. So it dovetailed kind of nicely, you know, the times, you know, as throughout. So, uh, Skip, you make a distinction early in the book about uh, you, you don't call them African-American whalers. You don't call them black whalers. You call them whalers of color, right? So tell us a little bit about that. I, w I was stunned. Um, going back for a second to the Siemens Protection Papers and the descriptions themselves, you know, yellow, brown, black, you know, all the colors that they use to define who these, who the people were, who the men were, you know, the workers aboard ship. That was one factor. But then the deeper I got into it, you know, is, well, wait a minute. There were no African-Americans, <laughs> which is where I started, you know, back then. Okay. Because there are very few black people who were Americans. They were slaves. Okay. Um, and then what you call the ones from West, the West Indies. And then what you call the ones, you know, the Cape Verdeans, all right? For a long time, 
you know, even today, you know, Cape, Cape, most Cape Verdeans, you know, you know, will acknowledge being black in terms of color, but being black in terms of race, you know, no, they're not. Okay. You know, one of my friends said, and I quote in the book, you know, we're the, we're the black people who came to America on purpose. <laughs> okay. So, you know, the, you know, Cabo de Verde, which is the name of the country, which is Cape, the Cape Verdean islands, the eight islands, the chain of islands that make that up. You know, they are on the West coast of Africa. The Portuguese took their slaves there. They encouraged their people to intermarry so they could have more people, workers, you know, slaves, you know, you know, in Cabo de Verde. Um, so by the time they came here at the end of the whaling days, you couldn't call them African or American. You know, you know it just didn't work. They're from their own country. Um, further convoluted, you know, were Native Americans. You know, and I, I found some really insidious, you know, things you know, and and studying this, you know, well, you know, what would you call a Native American? Well, first of all, you wouldn't call them an American, would you? Because <laughs> this is their land. I'd like to call them the original people. That's a little bit diff- difficult. But what you got to the mid 1700s on Nantucket, when the Europeans came, they brought their diseases with them, and they wiped out the Native Americans on Nantucket giving opportunity to the black people that they had brought there as slaves to do, to pursue whaling. The same thing happened on Martha's Vineyard. The same thing happened in Sag Harbor. So over the years, once you get to the mid-late 1700s, the white man would encourage Native American people and black people to intermarry and have children. And they would say to the black person, well, if you have children, they can never be a slave because they're part Native American. Okay, which is fundamentally not true, (laughs) but they couldn't read. They didn't know. And there weren't that many people on these small islands, you know, the, you know, the the east end of Long Island, the small, tiny island of Nantucket, which is a third the size of Martha's Vineyard. They don't have a lot of contact with outside world. They don't have contact with people. But on the other hand, you know, if those children were free, and of course they were, and we all know that now. Now you are no longer 100% Native American, so you can no longer be a tribal member, and we can steal your land. Interesting. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You know, you know who knew? You know, depending on which side of the, you know, the color scheme you are. You know, you know, I'm a white guy. Good plan. (laughs) You know, that'll work. (laughs) I I made more people to work for me for free, and I took their land legally at the same time. Wow. Uh, So, so all this occurs in whaling. It's, it's incredible. So, Skip, wanted to bring this forward to today, right? So we're having this conversation uh, against the backdrop of the, the Black Lives Matter conversation that's going on uh, on the podcast. In just the last month, we've had a couple of uh, African-American or Black uh, authors who've written for Proceedings and been on the podcast talk about uh, race relations in the military, race in the Navy, their experiences with uh, race or racism uh, and how it's impacted their careers. What are your thoughts as you've done great research on this particular topic that really was critical at, at, in an in industry that was foundational to America in the 17 and 1800s, right? What, what are some things or takeaways from that, your experience, your, your writing uh, to, to today? Here's, here's a perfectly relative one. You know, I, I did a little homework. We know there have been 52 whaling captains of color that stretch back to 1700s go to 1928. Around about 1928, they were just completing 
the fallacy of reconstruction. Okay. You know, where the North won the civil war and the South won the conversation, which now today is replicated with, we want the flags down and, and we want the statues down and, you know, all this along the way, one of the, one of the more meritorious, if you will, industries has been the military. You know, and most people from Colin Powell down, the new, you know, chief of staff down, you know, you know, will say that. And I've heard them say that, you know, before I met, you know, Colin Powell. But here's a fact. Since 1922, the United States has used 69 aircraft carriers that served for 1,481 combined years with not a single black captain. Why is that? Why is that? How many submarines have we had? How many captains? I've got a book about black submariners. Um, and I, I don't recall, you know, exactly, but there's, you know, a couple of hundred folks. Most of them are cooks and stewards. How's that work? Okay. Now we're talking about institutionally the best of us in the military. What happened to the rest of us? You know, when it's sheer economics, you know, involved. You know, and, you know, I, let me take a little criticism myself, you know, you know, you know, as luck would have it. Um, I was born, I, I'm part of the lucky gene pool. You know, my dad, and mom were college educated. My dad owned his own business, the largest black owned engineering firm in the world. I got to grow up with help, you know, private schools in the summer home. Along the way, after deciding one to be in media, I got to be, you know, fairly well known respected, you know, media executive in the radio business, you know, over the years, you know, made a lot of successes and did a lot of, you know, cool things. Um, for a while, I was the chairman of the Radio Advertising Bureau, which is an industry association. I was the vice chairman of the National Association of Broadcasting, an industry association. And today, there are very few people even on those boards who look like me. Or Kate Brodier as a Native American. You know, you follow? So, you follow. So what, so what it is, it's this, you know, you know, that's systemic racism. If these folks were good enough to be captains of whale ships when life and death was an issue and our leading institutions cannot see them as executive material, what, that's systemic racism. We've got 52 whaling captains. As of the last draft, there have been 102 NFL black quarterbacks. There's a lot of singers, there's a lot of dancers, there's a lot of entertainers, there's a whole lot of, you know, tastemakers, if you will. But people who make the decisions, people who greenlight things, they're not that many at all. There's no one in television who's black and who's a decision maker. And I say decision maker, you know, when I was a chief operating officer and chief executive officer, I understand the nature of making decisions that involves people's lives and livelihoods, okay, and, and making the decisions and being charged with the success or the failure of decisions to take the company forward or not. Why are there none in any of our taste maker mediums today? Not newspapers, not magazines, unless it's Essence or one of the, one of the two or three black ones that remain. Um, so that's what, that's what we're faced with. Um, and, and unfortunately, if you know, it's awful. I don't want to bring it up again. I'm tired of seeing it. Shit, you're all probably tired of it too. All it took was one guy to kneel on one guy's knee on TV. And listen to what he had to say. That's the nature of systemic racism, and that's what we deal with today. I think the other element that struck me as I was reading the book, and and I entreat the listeners to uh, to read the book, 
uh, because of actually, the... Actually, I prefer you buy it. You don't have to read it. Skip wants you to buy the book. I'm assuming that you will also read the book because there's knowledge there, right? I think too many people are buying books without reading yes. books. That's a separate podcast. But um, personalities like Paul Cuffey and the other profiles in this book, if, if I was a black American and I was ignorant of those, I would feel like I don't quite understand my heritage. You know, and, yeah. and what should be sources of great pride. As you say, with the subtitle of the book, it is the first meritocracy. While the book is being published, my wife and I went to see the movie uh, Hidden Figures. This, this is one piece when John Glenn says, if that lady doesn't do the math, you know, for this trip, I'm not going. You know, and my and we loved it. And oh my goodness, it's you know, you know, making contribution. Or we're not just slaves. Or we're not betrodden. This is so uplifting. This is great. On the way home, we're talking about it, and all of a sudden, it occurred to me that happened while I've been alive. I was in high school or college when that happened. How do I not know that? Why is that story not told? So how we how can we expect younger white folks? anybody black to know anything about their history because there's very little of it that's around the stories are all there and sure. we're fighting about uh things that are, are are a cartoon reading of our history they're not really our history and that's what's frustrating they're purple things yeah, yeah, yeah let me first we have paul cuffy but you know there's a also a guy named henry gonzalez you know one of my captains dude's a total scoundrel <laughs> a scoundrel yeah, so let's paint that that picture also you know, but, you know, when we get back to, you know, no, this stuff is not available. I say, you know, let's do something like the Workers' Progress Administration did. Okay. They were the ones who, as a busy work, make work projects, took the, the, um, Siemens protection papers and made them into a list. The island of Nantucket, their historical society, has identified every black person who's ever lived on Nantucket. Now, granted, it wasn't that many. I think that at its peak was 547, but that's out of very few people, you know, back in those days in the you know 1700s, 1800s. You know, why would we not make an investment and go back? We have the list of slaves' names and find out what every single one of these people did and where their progeny are today. You know, now where's the payback? Netflix, Amazon. You know, Apple TV, there's a lot of places once you find these stories that you can bring these out and share with people. You know, but, you know, it's it's we'd be glib in saying that there's enough material already for people to read. And the stuff that's available is like master's thesis level reading. Yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not an educator. You know, I'm a hardworking media type who decided they want to write and was enamored with this project. You know, so I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, stake any any. Um, you know, claim from an ivory tower about this, but that's something I think should be looked at. No, and I'm just thinking in terms of Netflix or, or you know, a screenwriter with this material. You know, you can imagine. And as I was reading the the scene of Paul Cuffey bringing a ship back to the Eastern Shore, and they're they're sailing by the shore, and his black crew is looking at slaves. Right. Kind of with this sense of confusion and, and, and right. ignorance, right? And so that right. scene, you can imagine, that's just amazing content. I mean, it's just the, this humanity of it. Trying to put that scene into the treatment that I'm working on now about a guy named Jubal, who's a slave who becomes a whaling captain. 
you know, and Paul Cuffey's going to help him escape. Well, I will, I will watch that all day long. <laughs> so we're going to leave it there. We're out of, we're out of time. The book is called Whaling Thank Captains you. of Color: America's First Meritocracy. The author is Skip Finley. It's available from Naval Institute Press. Skip, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. Check my website, skipfinley.com, for more. And that's Finley spelled F-I-N-L-E-Y. Nice Irish name. Yes, love it. (laughs) All right, thank you. Have fun up there at uh, Martha's Vineyard. All right, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week.